Hello, you are listening to Maghreb and Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, politics, art, culture, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Cultural Heritage Preservation in the Maghreb Lecture Series and was recorded on Friday, April 15, 2022, at the Darben Gessem Hotel in Tunis. For this episode, we visited Darben Gassim in the Medina of Tunis to interview social entrepreneur Leila Ben Gassim. In conversation with Neely Egan, the CIMAT Cultural History of Tourism researcher, Ms. Ben Gassim discusses several of her initiatives to preserve physical spaces and support local artisans in the Medina, including the boutique hotel Darben Gassim, Medina Tea, the Medina's first economic interest group, and Daral Harka, a creative industry hub. Well, thank you for sitting down and chatting with us. Your work in the Medina has been one of the most critical efforts to preserve heritage in Tunis, both spaces as well as practices. So can you just tell us about your multiple projects in Tunis and also your approach to preserve this element of Tunisia's heritage? Well, first of all, we are all uh, passers-by in history. So it's humbling to call me that way, but I think a lot of people have done amazing things before which have created interest for me to be here today. So it started with a big uh, want to start a guest house because I strongly believe that our tourism did not do our culture and heritage justice. (laughs) And that was the start of the idea. I just felt that we are putting tourists in hotels that give their back to the city and there needs to be a more authentic experience that we can create that tells a more real story of Tunisia. So uh, there was an old dar for sale in 2006 and that was the very first Darbingism. And I remember the first time I walked in, I felt the weight of responsibility in restoring it. But also I felt that it tells the whole story of Tunisia with all the migrants that have put their touch in the building. The tiles came from migrants, the stonework came from other migrants, and it's all sitting together and it's Tunisia today. So it started with the guest house. And then of course, once you start a guest house in the Medina of Tunis, you realize that you cannot create an experience with just the dar. You need to do a bit more. And as I'm a social entrepreneur, I wanted to hire people from the community. And when you hire people from the community, you understand the problems of the community. And then one thing leads to the other. We reinvested all our profits in restoring a second dar. But then also we use our profits to create spaces for young people, help them not drop out of school, improve their um, reading, you know, grades in school. And at the same time, you want to tell an authentic story. So you start working with artisans, discovering problems with the preservation of crafts. And that pushes you to create experiences and shared economy with your guests. So it kind of beautifully snowballed. We had our very first guest at Darbingesum in um, September 2013. And since then, it has been a beautiful journey with a lot of challenges, but looking back, I think uh, we have created an interesting story. In fact, uh, we have welcomed uh, 62 nationalities since our start. And I'm happy to say that we work with tens of artisans around us today. And it took you five years of renovations? Oh no, we bought the house in 2006. 
then the first guest came in 2013. Between the two, there was like all the struggle to find the money to restore the dar, and there was a revolution. <laughs> a little detail. And all the licenses and all the... Then, of course, you start the process before the revolution and you need to finish it after the revolution. And then, you know, the whole country changed in the meantime. And during the revolution, you know, it's very hard to find workers. The Medina was not very accessible because of Qasba 1, Qasba 2. And, <laughs> wow. and, and then after the revolution, you continue the restoration because you strongly believe that the country will stand back again on its feet. And it's a way to contribute to making it maybe the revolution a success. <laughs> and then, so your newest project, Medinity, can you tell us more about that and what inspired you to launch that particular initiative? So Medinity started in 2015 as an idea. We started getting together all the small businesses in the Medina through Darbin guests. And so we started creating some shared economy, some packages, some experiences for our guests so that the guests that enjoy our guest house, they can also enjoy the Medina, spend the day with the Balga artisan, spend the day with the Shashia artisan. And then in the meantime, of course, we started knowing the artisans, the cafes, the restaurants. So we kept on coming together and thinking, okay, how can we structure ourselves in a way that will help all our businesses sustain better? In fact, we were all facing the same problems, security, cleanliness. At night, nobody wants to come. and the weekend, it's kind of calm. All of us were facing the same problems, but each one of us cannot solve it on their own. And this is how the idea came about. So uh, we were not sure how to structure ourselves. And then we had some consultants from EBRD who helped us design an operating model that united us. And uh, today we're united under one legal frame of work. It's, it's like an economic interest group, which we call Mdinti. And I'm thankful to all of them. They have elected me as the president of the group. So uh, today we are uh, 17 small businesses based in the Medina, three guest houses, a restaurant, artisans, a bookstore, and uh, we all come together to go meet the mayor together, uh, meet, you know, if, if I go by myself, maybe it will be more challenging to get to, but if we sign a letter and we are many micro businesses, so we are like an economic lobby for the Medina, for urban revival. And of course, this helps us sustain our businesses. And in fact, Mdinti, the legal framework started just in May 2020. Just in time with COVID, we had many dreams which we could not really accomplish because the Medina was uh, very uh, sad and empty during COVID. But uh, we stayed together, we met a lot, and uh, maybe Mdinti helped us help each other, comfort each other, bring positive vibes to each other. We were all struggling. So now I hope the nightmare is over. We have launched a very important project. Thanks to GIZ, it's creating activities in the weekend for the Medina. So people are encouraged to come and they have been very successful. In fact, the Medina was not an attractive place in the weekend usually. But now people think of the Medina on the weekends. We organize tours, we organize workshops at artisan workshops. We can organize a half day, one whole day for you in the Medina with all the guest houses and all the restaurants and everything that's around. So it has created a new cultural dynamic that we all needed. And could you give us a few details and examples about the work that you do with the artisans in the Medina and what this means for cultural heritage, both to the general public, 
the inhabitants of the Medina and of course the artisans themselves. Yes, we have used our profits to collaborate, especially to shed the light on some arts and crafts that maybe people did not think of. For example, calligraphy. We worked a lot with the, the Tunisian Association of Calligraphic Art and uh, they are working a lot on reviving a font script called the Qairawani font script that was fascinated because it's the only Arabic font script that has a Tunisian city name. It was invented by a Tunisian calligrapher in year 1019. So uh, we collaborated with the Association of Tunisian Calligraphic Art to document it and when you document it you preserve it and then we also worked with the graphical designers and programmers to make it into a font that you can download and use. And we also promoted the font script so that artisans can use it in gypsum carving, in paintings, in shawls, in different forms, so that you know the Tunisians embrace a calligraphy that was designed, I would say, exactly one century ago in Qairawan. And of course, they organized contests and things like that to promote it. We also did a beautiful project with Rashidia. Rashidia is an association founded in 1934 for the preservation of Tunisian traditional music. And in fact, it was a project that I very much enjoyed. We did crowdfunded from Tunisians abroad. We had a lot of volunteers from the Tunisian School of Architecture. We had architects volunteering. And in fact, what we did is that we sorted 100 years of paper archives. We digitalized them and we restored a building thanks to the donations of Tunisians abroad, a historical building that is now kind of the digital library of Rashidia. So it's a source for research, but also a source for inspiration because with young people now, we also organized an event, a few workshops at Dar al-Harka so that they can get inspired from our musical heritage and use it to compose new rhythms or our songs. Dar al-Harka is a very important base. It started out as a sort of co-working space. It's a space that we have also repurposed into a co-working space in the Medina of Tunis. And the idea was for young people in the community to find a place to meet, to study, to revise for their exams, to meet artisans, to exchange, watch movies, read books, discuss. And I mean, I see it with the teenagers that we work with that come to Dar al-Harka. They become motivated. They have a better sense of inclusion. And especially, I don't know if you know, but since the revolution until today, I think it should be a national priority. Maybe I'm too optimistic, but there's a lot of high school dropouts. There's, uh, I think, the last UNESCO study, 47% of students in primary school reach uh, baccalaureate. And I see it even with the community, even our team at Darben Gesem. The majority of people are high school dropouts these days, mm. especially teenagers. And of course, this is something that Dar al-Harka would like to make them feel they, they have a place to go that is democratic, that is safe, that is where they can unleash their potential. And then finally, there's always a desire or need, if not urgency, in preserving cultural heritage. What kind of opportunities, needs, or perhaps obstacles do you see in Tunisia in regards to preserving these various forms of cultural practice as well as physical space? Yes, there are a few um, challenges. I mean, for example, the government has an important wealth of historical building stock, and most of it is not being taken care of. I mean, we cannot blame the government. There are other priorities now, and financially it's complicated. But also, they don't have the know-how to repurpose and give it life and make it financially sustainable. And this is why I'm, I'm a big advocate for PPP. 
private-public partnership, and I think the government needs to open up and create partnerships with private sector, with civil society, to bring life to these buildings and help them contribute through their dynamic to the community, but also through a, a new management method that will improve the building resilience. The other thing that I think is extremely important is vocational training of crafts, which needs to be reformed, because today, as I said, the dropout age is getting younger and younger, so we need to rethink the accessibility age for vocational trainings, but also the instructors of the craft vocational trainings, as per the vocational ministry, needs to have a diploma. And of course, if you are a master artisan, it's not necessary that you have a university degree, but most probably you are skilled. So that needs to also be totally rethought to make vocational institutes really worthwhile for young people. The other opportunity, I think, important opportunity that can preserve our, um, especially artisan skills, is export. Exportation in Tunisia is quite complicated. The process is quite lengthy and is not made for small exports. And I think today, with decreased capability of Tunisians to acquire handmade products, with less tourists, I think export can really save through creating markets to artisans to preserve their manual intelligence. Mm -hmm. So um, these are the three things that I have in mind now that I think can tremendously contribute to heritage preservation. Well, thank you so much for taking some time and answering those questions. I mean, all these initiatives sound amazing. (laughs) And thanks to so much of your good work. So thank you. Thank you for listening to Maghreb and Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themagrebpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, visit our Facebook page, Maghreb and Past and Present Podcasts. Subscribe to the Semat newsletter at www.sematmagreb.org, or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode. Thank you.